Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and a mini-series within that series on the parables chapter, Matthew 13. So we're in this section now where Jesus is speaking a bit cryptically in a more veiled manner and teaching about the kingdom of God through parables. He does teach about the kingdom of God in a less veiled manner, in a non-parabolic manner, but here in Matthew 13 he speaks in parables, so more poetic language, veiled teaching. Talked about that last week, talked about one of the first parables that Jesus teaches, uh, the parable of the sower. And today we're going to break and talk about a very, very tricky passage, thank you so much, <laughs> um, about uh, why, speak, why did Jesus speak in parables at all? And so that's going to be the topic for today. It's actually very appropriate in a number of ways, uh, contextually where we are in Matthew and just as a community right now. Uh, but this might be a question you guys have had before. It's neat that the Bible raises this question for us. So if, even if it wasn't here, we could raise this question ourselves and say, why, why so cryptic? Why so veiled? Why is this truth being hidden from people? What's the point of all that? And why aren't parables talked about after the cross? Why is it much more clear? And there's a purpose for all of that. We'll unpack a lot of that today. There's some mystery here, a lot of questions we won't be able to get at completely um, clearly, but we are going to get there and look at just the glorious truth of the cross. Everything in the Bible gets us to Jesus and the cross. I hope that's clear for you if you've been here for a while. Maybe if you're here for the first time or brand new to the Bible, that's not clear. But let me just say, to begin, that is the case. In a very heavy, theologically deep passage like today, it's still the case. We're going to get to the rejection of our Savior that he is ensuring is going to happen so that he can secure our salvation. That's, that's always, he's always got his mind and his eyes set on Jerusalem where he's going to go to die for our sins at Calvary. And that's happening here. The parables and the rationale for parables even, uh, believe it or not, play into that as well. So we're going to ultimately get there uh, here here uh, today, which is a message we need to hear every day um, and, uh, and today uh, as, as well. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, Matthew 10, 13 to, or 13, 10 to 17 is our passage. Feel free to follow along here on screen or open your Bibles um, to this passage and uh, read along with us. Matthew 13, 10 to 17. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear. With their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. All right, so what I want to do today is uh, talk about this from three different angles. So again, the question is, it's a bit topical today. So the question is, the big question is, why does Jesus speak in parables at all? And again, definitionally, the parables are veiled teachings about the kingdom of God, a bit poetic and, and proverbial teachings that Jesus gives. Uh, here in Matthew 13, other gospels have a few more, but uh, Matthew's account is quite substantial. Uh, Matthew 13 gives several of them. We'll talk about more of them in subsequent weeks here, five more weeks in this mini-series. But the three reasons I have uh, to begin with here is more broad, and we'll get more specific. So we're starting broad, backing up here a little bit, and looking at the whole of the Scriptures. 
uh, back into the Old Testament, into this pre-cross narratives of the gospel genre, all the way to the cross and asking, what's different and what's similar? Uh, what's veiled about salvation history and history in itself uh, in, in general before the cross and what's more clear about the cross and, and thereafter? So we'll talk about it, uh, that as we go. Uh, but to begin, I want to reread verse 17. And the first uh, answer here is to keep with the hiddenness to clarity theme of biblical history. So one of the reasons Jesus speaks in parables is to grant, is to grant hiddenness and to keep with this idea of the hiddenness uh, perspective on the kingdom of God and himself and why he came into the world, but it's going to get clear. And so he's telling a part of the story uh, and keeping with a part of that story, the fogginess to clarity idea uh, by speaking in parables here. But again, verse 17 says, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. So the prophets of the Old Testament and righteous people of the Old Testament, they long to see what you see. They didn't see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So what verse 17 tells us is that there were veiled things in the Old Testament that found clarity and are finding clarity, but not full clarity yet because he hasn't died on the cross for the sins of the world and walked out of that tomb. But clarity is being found here through Jesus' teachings and revealing these things to the disciples. But he's saying that there were veiled things in the Old Testament that have found clarity now in me, in Jesus Christ. Or as we say often here at Hiawatha, the Old Testament was a shadow of the reality of Jesus Christ. So when Christ appears, we can understand the veiled meaning of Old Testament passages, and in this case, parables, a lot more, a lot more clearly. St. Augustine in, in the 4th century said that the New Testament is the key to unlock meaning of the Old Testament. The Old Testament had meaning to it, certainly, but it was always forward-pointing. And without the New Testament, and Christ in particular, and his office, or his work for us on the cross, we can't unlock that true meaning, what it was really trying to get at in a, in a foggy sense then, but in a much more clear sense now from a New Testament perspective. We can't unlock that meaning without Jesus Christ. He gives us clarity and meaning. He is the interpretational key of all the Bible. We cannot understand the Bible without the cross and the empty tomb. Everything's about it. So it was, beforehand, it was always about that, but in a foggy, pr more prophetic way. And, and, but in a way that the prophets kind of longed, they wanted to see the fulfillment of these things. There was enough revelation where the prophets could say, and righteous people, looking ahead in history and saying, I kind of know where this is headed, but I can't quite see it yet. It's like a glass in between. Can't quite get there. And they longed to see it. And the angels with them, actually. There's a New Testament passage that talks about that, how the angels long to look in the things of salvation and still do. They're climbing over each other's shoulders to get a good view of how God is saving sinful human beings. It's just the best show in the universe. And the angels want to see it. So there's that going on as well. But now in Christ, we have, uh, we have all, this, all this clarity. Now in the New Testament, it uh, talks about the word a mystery or secret. Uh, so the Greek word for mystery and secret is the same word. Sometimes you read other passages in, in the other epistles, for example, in the New Testament that don't use the word secret, like Matthew 13 does, it uses the word mystery. Uh, it's almost always the same Greek word. But when it uses that word mystery and secret, it always refers to the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, hidden or veiled before, but now disclosed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Romans 16 is a great passage on this. I want to read this, uh, three verses on this. The last words of the book of Romans. Paul says in encouragement to the Roman church, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to, here's, here's the key, the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore, through Jesus Christ. Amen. 
So Paul's acknowledging here in Romans 16 that it was a mystery. It was kept secret for long ages. The gospel of Jesus Christ was. It was beginning to be revealed, but it was foggy and blurred. But now in Christ, it's been disclosed. It's been made known to, to the nations. All of the Old Testament's been fulfilled. In that sense, it's granted clarity to what came before. So the promises of God in the Old Testament, the prophecies of Jesus Christ, the shadows and types of the gospel in the Old Testament were enough for people in Israel to cling to for future hope, but still unclear enough that they did not see fully. So, and all this relates then, as we go fast forward to Matthew 13, all this relates to the purpose of the parables as well. It's consistent with all of that. It's consistent with the veiled nature of pre-cross things, the foggy nature of things that came before the cross and the empty tomb. This is still pre-cross, remember, we're in Matthew 13 here. He has not died for the sins of the world and really began the essence of the New Testament yet. Things aren't fully fulfilled. And so the early parts of these gospel accounts are kind of like the Old Testament. Even though in your Bibles it says New Testament on a clean white page and then it starts Matthew 1, that's true because the New Testament began in some ways with the manger, with the birth of Christ, but really it didn't fully begin until the cross. Without the cross, there is no New Testament. There's no new covenant. There's no bloodshed. There's no way for God to get close to human beings and, and remove sin. None of that's possible. Those are all, that was what all the Old Testament was about is promising and predicting that in many and various ways. So without the cross, the New Testament is not possible, and we have no hope in the world at all. So in a lot of ways, what's happening before the cross is, is Old Testament-like. It's building the story and pointing ahead to the cross, but not serving as the essence or the reality itself. And so the parables then, again, keep in step with all these things on the left, even though most of those are Old Testament things, the parables still serve that purpose in keeping with the hiddenness to clarity progression that serves as the great biblical narrative and great biblical story. This is also why then, I alluded to this earlier, this is also why we don't see parables spoken in after the cross. The core of New Testament teaching is clear, not hidden. Jesus has died for our sins. He has become a man. The, nat the full nature of the, the essence of the kingdom of God is God became a man to serve as an advocate for us to die as a human being in our place on, a on the cross. That's very clear. That's not, we're not speaking in parables anymore when I say that. When the Bible says that, it's not parabolic. It's crystal clear. You can receive it or not, but it's not, it's not a foggy parable anymore. So the, the essence then of preaching in the book of Acts, for example, after Jesus rises from the dead and is around for those 40 days teaching the disciples, then ascends into heaven and the Holy Spirit's given, the essence of preaching is, is non-parabolic. It's very, very, very clear. And this is also why it's simultaneously easier for us to understand the parables now that we're in this New Testament era. Partly because Jesus explains, like last week if you were here, he explains some of those parables. He gets very clear about what it means to those who ask him and those who are being given revelation and given salvation. We'll come back to that here in a minute. But, um, but also because uh, the nature of the cross and New Testament reality uh, just grant us that lens that we can, that we can see uh, by it. Sometimes I like to think about it as, you know, those uh, red-tinted glasses you get sometimes to decode things in the back of cereal boxes? And probably other places too. I just think of cereal boxes a lot, like cereal. But um, you get those things in uh, the, the toy at the bottom or whatever. The, the red glasses help you decode the back of the box, you know, and see the code. It's kind of like that. It's like it's foggy before, and you can kind of see, but with, with the cross and the empty tomb, it's, it's that red-tinted glass that helps you read clearly what the message is. So it's, it's like that. Uh, that's what's going on here. And, and now on this side of the cross, we have to remind ourselves of that, of that progression and put ourselves in the shoes of those who first heard the parables and understand that it would have been very foggy, but a little bit more clear to the disciples who are being given the answers and given much more 
Not full revelation yet. They didn't quite get the cross even now, but a little bit more because Jesus was teaching them and saying, blessed are you. You are being given understanding here. Uh, but to those on the outside who are hardening their hearts, it's being kept from them. It's being hidden from them. And that moves me into the second thing. So this is the first broad thing here to understand one reason why Jesus speaks in parables is keeping in step with this greater theme that we see elsewhere in Scripture. The second reason is to harden those who harden their hearts and to draw out those who are being saved. So to harden those who harden their own hearts and to draw out those who are being saved. So to put it another way, parables, Jesus speaking in parables, turns away those who are spiritually insensitive and in that way hide and further harden them to the truth. But it also draws out the disciples who are being given revelation. Because they ask him about it in private. What does this mean? They want to know more. So the ability to understand what the kingdom of God is all about is being given to some as well. They are being saved. And so it, it basically draws them out uh, so they might ask what, those, what that meaning is and it's being given more clear. This is why it says to those who have been, who have been given to, all the more is being given to, those who don't, have, who don't have anything, even what they have is being given away. So it's kind of like God is basically with parables hardening the hardened even more but softening those who are being softened even, even more. He's cooperating, divinely cooperating with what the nature of the human heart is doing inside, inside um, a person's soul. So what he's doing here, though, to support this is quoting from the Old Testament, Isaiah 6, 9 to 10, spoken uh, by God through Isaiah the prophet to Israel several centuries before Christ. And here in context, in Isaiah 6, it refers to Israel's exile or physical separation from the promised land that he gave them. So if you know a little bit about the Old Testament and its history, this was basically the, the apex in one sense of how bad it got for Israel. They were constantly disobeying, and they're a picture of all of humanity when they were doing this, constantly unable to keep God's commands and laws, constantly rebelling, constantly wanting to go back to Egypt where they were saved from because life was better being a slave than being underneath God's protective care, constantly complaining, constantly grumbling, and overall just constantly rebelling against the Creator and setting themselves up on the throne of their, on the throne of their life. And God sent the prophets to call them to repentance and said, stop this, stop it, come back to me and I'll wash you of this and I'll, and I'll re-give you all the blessings and promises in this land and I won't, send, I won't send the Babylonians, I won't send the Assyrians to sack you who will take you away in another land and assimilate you and, and take away your Israelness uh, by intermarrying with you and all of that. But sadly it happened. And, and the northern kingdom Israel went away to the, to the Assyrians and now Isaiah here is prophesying uh, to Israel, but to Judah, the southern kingdom, and saying, the Babylonians are coming as well. You will not listen to me. You will not, you will not uh, repent. So that's the context here. And so I, Jesus is saying it's kind of like this. What's happening now in my generation with you, he's speaking to the Jews here and to those who are hardening themselves to Jesus' teachings. He's saying this happened before in history. In Isaiah, when they would not listen to Isaiah's message and they hardened their hearts, God sent the Babylonians to take them away into physical exile. But now, separation from God on every level. Banishment from him, slavery, hopelessness. Here in Matthew 13, it takes on greater fulfillment, though, because Jesus is a greater Isaiah. He's a greater prophet. So the connection, then, is like Israel rejected the words of Isaiah in the Old Testament, which called them to repent and turn and come back to God for forgiveness, and talked about the physical exile that would ensue when they didn't listen and they didn't, so does the present generation reject the words of the ultimate Isaiah, Jesus, and so continue to experience ongoing spiritual exile or separation from God in their sin. 
And what parables do then is come alongside that and divinely cooperate with that and further harden the already hardened to sin and ensure that they don't then hear and that they don't then, as it says actually uh, here, lest they turn so that they don't see with their eyes and don't hear with, with their ears. The disciples, however, are a picture of the ones who are given, that's a key word. If you like to circle in your Bibles or highlight in your Bibles, circle that word, given. They're given as a gift, understanding about the kingdom of heaven. Though even for them, it's not crystal clear yet, as we talked about uh, before. But we see a clear separation of people happening here, right? The disciples ask about Jesus and the meaning of what the kingdom of God's all about and more about his perceived messiahship from their perspective. What's this all about? And some of that meaning is being given to them. It's being granted to them that they might understand. But the crowds are being kept away. They're being hardened and kept in the fog. And that has a purpose. That's really important to understand here as we move forward. And I'll get to my third point here um, in a second. That it has a divine purpose and that purpose is ultimately uh, the cross. But I do want to digress here just for a second and talk about this idea, uh, even just briefly, about how God's sovereignty cooperates with human responsibility. Uh, it's a big issue biblically. Uh, some of you guys are familiar with this, uh, the debate over this, the two perspectives on this, and the paradox of this. Some of you are maybe brand new to this. Uh, but the issue is we can be confronted with a passage like this and ask, well, whose fault is it? Who's hardening whose heart, right? Is God hardening the heart or is it the person? Is the person responsible or is God ultimately responsible for hardening these people's heart and keeping them from seeing and keeping them from hearing, keeping them from turning and, and being forgiven. Mark's account uh, of this, the Gospel of Mark, is even trickier. It says, and more explicitly gets at this, it says, For those outside, the crowds, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, less so that they don't turn and be forgiven. So Mark's account is even more clear that, that there's a divine activity here that is preventing people from hearing and understanding for, for a purpose, which again we'll get to here in a second. But, but going back to the issue with God's sovereignty and human responsibility, the answer biblically is both at the exact same time concurrently. Both. The biblical authors have much less of an issue than we Western-thinking modernist people do today over the paradox and the tension that exists, that exists biblically between God's sovereign control over all things even our choices, even our responses to his grace, and yet humankind's complete responsibility to respond to it at the, at the same time. The biblical authors have no issue with that whatsoever. You know, we do, but the Bible doesn't. And so there's a challenge there just philosophically and logically. Do we, do we have an issue with that? Do we wrestle unduly with that? Or do we rest in the tension that, that the Bible does? A couple of places this comes out. Back in Exodus, when God is saving Israel from Egypt and Pharaoh is this uh, premier picture, the ultimate one, who's hardening his heart against God's revelation and the miracles Moses is doing and will not listen to God saying, let my people go. Uh, it talks about this. In two verses, chapter nine, or chapter 9, verses 7 and 12, it says, But the Pharaoh was hardened, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. But later, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord has spoken to Moses. So, it goes back and forth between the two. The Pharaoh hardened his own heart against God. He hardened his own heart against the message of the creator of the universe. And yet later it says God was the one that acted on that and, and cooperated with that to harden it even further. So it goes back and forth. It's just overly simplistic to say it was one or the other. You cannot look at the Bible fairly and say, well, it's, 
There must be a way around one of the two. It's absolutely impossible. And people, people try to do it all the time. We try to do that logically and think, well, there must be an explanation for this. And, you know, oh, well, you know, Pharaoh hardened it first, God second, or God first and, you know, Pharaoh second, whatever it is, and, and say, well, then it must be the, the impetus of all that must be on one or the other. But reality is, biblically, it's happening all the time concurrently. 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 to 12, speaking of unbelievers broadly, gets at this idea too. So they, unbelievers, non-Christians, refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So you see both happening there too, right? People hardened their hearts against the truth. Jesus is the truth. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion that they may continue to believe what is false. He's divinely cooperating with their, their already hard heart that's already there. So both are happening. We can't look at that and say, well, which is it? We, and, and choose. We have to say, well, both are happening concurrently. So we can philosophize about it. We can argue one side. We can do all kinds of interpretational gymnastics to get around the side that we're less comfortable with. But the Bible just holds out both and says both are true concurrently. Rest in that tension. Put your trust in biblical arguments, not in philosophical ones, is the ultimate invitation. So, but back in Matthew 13 then, we just simply conclude that we can't fully understand how that works logically, but it's clear that those who are stuck in the murkiness of Jesus' parabolic teaching were stuck there because they had hard hearts, because they rejected Jesus and many were plotting to kill him, and because God also hardened them as well. They had hard hearts, and because also God prevented them, through the speaking of parables, from understanding clearly what the kingdom of God was about in, in that pre-cross time period. So as Jesus is teaching then and healing and forgiving sins and expanding God's kingdom in its early stages into the world, people are offended. They're leaving him. Many are already plotting to kill him. That's already happened. That's very key in understanding the placement of Matthew 13. There's already been this huge sect of Jews that are seeking, how can we kill this guy? And it's in that context then that Jesus is coming in, speaking in parables, fulfilling Isaiah 6, and saying, this has happened already in history. I'm the ultimate Isaiah here. I'm going to speak in parables to ensure that that hardness continues and to draw out those at the same time who are being saved, who are seeking me, and who are being given soft hearts, cultivated hearts, so that the seed of the gospel might be planted there and actually grow and bear fruit. All right. This moves me then into my third point. This is the most important point. There is a divine side. Talked about this last week. How you can look at a passage sometimes and see a human side and a divine side to a text. We talked about that with the parable of the sower, kind of from a different angle. But that's coming out here today as well. There's a human side. People harden their hearts or soften them. And there's a divine side. God does that. He hardens hearts and he softens heart concurrently at the same time. What I want to do now is focus on that divine side. All of this is planned. You know, one thing about Christ, and you'll see this more as this plays out, we get closer to the cross. Christ is a very, very intentional God. There's nothing in the Bible by chance. And he says nothing and does nothing by chance. All there for a reason. So if we start there with the presupposition, and we can, and we look at the parables and even just a passage like this and say, what does this tell us about his plan? What does this tell us about foreknowledge? This divine plan to be to harden some and to keep some from the truth. Why would he do that at all? And the answer is to ensure his own rejection, which will bring life to the world. So that's the third thing. Part of why Jesus is speaking in parables, 
is to ensure that he would be rejected by the Jews in a broad sense, not by all, ultimately from all, because even the disciples flee him. He wants, to be, he wants the cross to happen. It's his ultimate mission. And to do that, the Jews have to reject him. So he's keeping some in the dark so that they will reject him, so that he will go to the cross, so that he will die for the sins of the world and fall the Old Testament and God's saving purposes in the world and save the, save the universe, restore all creation. That's how it's going to happen. And so to do that, rejection has to occur. Parables play a small part in ensuring that rejection, which ultimately has a place in God's saving agenda. And we know this is the case. If the cross is the goal of all history and the entirety of the scriptures, we have to say that rejection and evil and suffering have a place in the greater plan of God. We have to say that, right? Because we have to say that God intended the cross. Then we have to say that he intended suffering, intended rejection, intended evil to serve that greater good purpose. Have to say it. Parables then play a part in that. They help hide the kingdom from those who would eventually kill him. Luke 10, 21 gets at this as well. This is Jesus speaking. Speaking to God the Father. You have hidden these things from the learned and the wise and revealed them to little children. So Jesus is active here in this pre-cross time of hiding things uh, from people for the sake of his rejection. It's similar to when in Matthew 8, 4, when Jesus uh, heals people uh, and tells them uh, that, you know, I'm healing you, but it's important for you not, not to go tell anybody about it. Be sure you don't tell anybody that I just basically cleansed you from leprosy. Well, I did, and you've been leprous, you know, for, for two decades. Don't tell anyone that. Be sure to keep it quiet. It's the same idea. He's trying to, he's trying to hold back his identity a bit so that, it, so that it doesn't spread out too quickly and that rejection would not happen. It becomes much more clear in Matthew 16. We'll get to this later when he says, after the disciples realize for the first time he is the Christ. Right after that, Jesus says, look at this. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. What? You know, like they got the answer, you know, like tell the world, right? But what, what, what the point of this is, is don't, don't let it be known, I have to be rejected. I am the Christ, but I have to go to the cross to fulfill my mission. It's why I'm here. I have to die. I have to be betrayed. I have to go to trial before Pilate. I have to be hated. I have to be mocked. I have to be placed upon by a crown of thorns. I have to be ridiculed. I have to be stripped, flogged, nailed to a tree. I have to fulfill all the scriptures for that for my loved people. He's doing it out of love. He's doing this. The cross is always the focus. Always. And it is here as well. His rejection has to be, has to be, has to be ensured. That's why he says what he says in Matthew 16. Acts 2 gets at this as well. This is post-cross, post-resurrection, post-ascension. Part of the first sermon ever given by the Apostle Peter. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, you killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The divine foreknowledge, the divine intent of God, the he delivered the Christ up. And he says to the, to the men of Israel listening, you're the ones that crucified him. So again, we could ask, well, whose fault was it? Who crucified Christ? Well, the Jews did. And, and the Gentiles, literally, who nailed him to the tree. Well, it, but does it say here that God did it as well? Yes. 
God did it. God divinely intended all of this to happen. It was part of the plan. God intends to save. It was not an afterthought, not a plan B. Nothing just kind of randomly happened out of God's foresight. He intended this always to happen. And and again, to bring it into the world, rejection by the Jews, to fulfill Scripture and to ensure that it actually historically happened, to take sins away, needed to be uh, rejected. So again, both both happened concurrently. Was Judas responsible for Jesus' betrayal or was God? Both, right? The Bible clearly says Judas sinned, right, by betraying the Christ. But yet God, here in Acts 2, God is clearly behind it. He's in control. This is where I want us to go with this. And I'll bring us back to some very cross-focused stuff here in a second. But just backing up to this bigger principle here for, for a bit. This is something that I think as Christians we understand, but we don't practically, tangibly understand this in an applied manner on a daily basis. And that is, if God is behind the cross, if God is intending the cross and all that happened there, everything that happened, think about it, everything, all that I just described, the betrayal, the rejection, the suffering, the shame, the, the separation from God the Father, the hell he took upon himself. Is God, if God is behind all of that, orchestrating the whole thing and bringing such great good out of it, The best good of all. There's no greater good than what came out of the cross and no greater evil than what what preceded it. If he's in all of that, then how much more can we affirm that he'll use the lesser evils in our lives to bring about greater good? Right? How much more can we affirm that? Because everything we experience in life from evil, from suffering, from pain, we experience death, all of that, though, seething and difficult and painful at times, though it might bring us to our, just the last string, it's not as bad and not as evil and not as dark as the cross. And God brought the greatest good in the universe out of that. That's the center of our faith. There's no more central component to the Christian faith than God dying in, in the place of sinful people, right? But if you expand out and describe that in our minds, we see that the worst of the darkness, the worst of evil behind the bright foreground, of the greatest contrast, the bright foreground of the cross, that is the core of, of, the Christian, of the Christian faith. I mean, Christians have really the best answer, not an easy answer, but the best answer for why evil exists in the world at all. Why suffering and evil exist concurrently with a perfect God. And that is, on the one hand, it's because of us. We bring evil into the world. Adam and Eve brought evil into the world. All rebellion against the creator brought evil into the world. Yet, in another, that's the human side. In another sense, the divine side says the cross is why it exists. Right? I mean, we can't, we can't say that, if we, if we say that God was wrong to bring ultimately to orchestrate that evil would come into the world and suffering and rejection, then we're also saying it was wrong for God to bring the cross into the world. We're saying that at the exact same time. If we say it's wrong for him to orchestrate in a broad sense, evil and rejection and suffering, to be somehow sovereignly over that, even though humans have responsibility for it, to be sovereignly authoring that into history, then we're also simultaneously saying the cross was wrong for God to bring into the world. Wrong. Scandalous, but we're also saying wrong, that it, was, that it happened. So again, here's what I want to encourage us with. At the center of our faith is the greatest pure, unadulterated goodness at the cross coming out of the greatest of all evils. The Son of God dying a cursed, torturous death on a cross with criminals on both sides. There's no greater evil, no greater hellish thing that's ever happened. 
It's, it's the ends of both spectrums. God, God has bookended everything in that manner. And he's saying everything else that happens in history is, is in here. Very bad things happen and very good things happen, but there's no worse thing than the cross. There's no better thing than the cross. It's like, it's like it's, it's the bookends. So we can define our existence a bit within the gray area and say, not only this is why I'm suffering, this is why I'm having such a great day, such a terrible day because of that, but we can also find a lot of peace and comfort in a God who can empathize, who's been there as a human being, who's taken the worst and experienced the greatest, who's, who's, accomplished, who's purchased life, who's taken on death, so that we don't have to experience that worst evil. Because again, everything is in relation to that. Nothing we face, though terrible, terrible, nothing will be as bad as that. And so we have a Savior who's, who's been there for us. It's, it's one of the great and glorious applied gospel truth livings that we can have as Christians that the world doesn't, doesn't have. But we can also look at things like this. Sometimes you hear people say, even atheists or uh, secular people would acknowledge this, that somehow this really hard thing I went through formed me for the better. Like somehow this really difficult season in my life, good came out of it. And for a, for a non-Christian, that's, that's impossible to understand. It's just this strange anomaly in life that is never explained. But for a Christian, it actually makes perfect sense. Because at the center of our faith is a God who intends evil for good, who brings good out of the worst of evil. So then we experience that in life when we're in the dark time or when we come out of that and we see some kind of blessing or good come out of that time of suffering. We can say, well, of course, all of history revolves around the son of the cross. All of the planets do. Every, everything that I go through revolves around that. So I can expect that God will somehow redeem this stuff, this messiness, this crap in my life that's just mucking up everything. And I, I, there's, there's, a, there's a light. We can say Christians are the only people that can actually say and mean it that everything's going to be okay because Jesus walked out of that tomb. Uh, people, people say that, but they, don't, they can't actually mean that. It's just like, it's not really, it's, it doesn't have the power of God in it for just you to say that without a Christian worldview. But Christians can actually say, I don't know how it's going to actually happen here, but you can look at someone going through it and you can say, it's going to be okay. Jesus woke up from death, and he did it for you. And death has no more hold over you. That, that's the power of the God. When you apply that to our life, when we're in dark times as a community, as individuals, we can look to the cross, and for all those reasons, we can take comfort and peace and bring that to others as well. Preach that good news. This is what happens when we get the cross and the, God, and the empty tomb more in our lives. We start to just, it starts to just marinate in our mind a bit more. And we start to actually, actually believe it and live as though it actually happened and start to see it in our sufferings and see it in our glories, see it in our comforts, see it in our trials, and take a lot of comfort in a God who's been there and been there before us. So this is where all this is headed. This is where I want us to end today, is to get all these, thing, all these three things are helpful. The trajectory, I think, of all of them is right here. Jesus is speaking in parables to ensure rejection that he might bring life to the world. This is not ultimately about us. This is not ultimately about the issue of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, though that's a piece to it. But if we, if we think about Matthew 13, 10 to 17 as the passage about that issue, uh, we're never going to see Christ ultimately in it. It's about him. It's not about us. This is about Jesus and his rejection. Like when we think about Matthew 13, we should think about the Son of God coming into the world to give revelation and clarity through his own death and resurrection, about him clearing the fog, it's about to lift here. 
And from our vantage point in history, it has lifted. It's about him bringing the mystery of salvation when the fullness of time had come, like Galatians 2 talks about. It's about God divinely planning and foreknowing the cross. That's what you should think about. Think about Matthew 13 in parables. Think about God divinely orchestrating and planning your salvation. Even those who crucified him, like those are left out to dry, he loves them. Even those who are rejecting them and are outside or not understanding the parables here, ultimately ones who will be cheering for his head and asking for a criminal to be released instead of him, the Son of God. Even those he's dying for, even you, even me, he's dying for. That's, what's go- That's what we should think about when we think about Matthew 13, 10 to 17. This is about the rejection of the Son of God, the, the ensuring of that, the divine foreknowing and orchestrating of that to ensure that the cross would actually happen and that life would be brought to the ends of the earth, because it is. So in conclusion, let me read verse 16 again in 17. This is true for all of you if you believe, and even if you don't today, this can be true of you right now. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So don't miss this part. <laughs> this is like how it ends. If you believe in Christ, this is true of you. You're blessed. Blessed means saved, biblically, because being blessed means being close to God. And the only way to get close to him is to bask in the blood of Jesus, which takes your sins away. So you're blessed because your ears hear and your, your eyes actually see and understand the kingdom of God, the nature of it. So rejoice in it. That's been, and here's what really makes you rejoice if you aren't already. It's been given to you. You haven't, I haven't figured out Jesus, figured out the gospel. If you understand, it's been granted to you to understand the kingdom of heaven, given to you by someone outside of you. He's allowed you to understand. That's how much he loves you. To that degree, he's cultivated your heart to receive that seed of the gospel like we talked about last week. It's in his hands, and he's done it. So you're blessed. So I'm not speaking in parables today. Uh, And even if we are, we're speaking in a way that you can understand it because we're on this side of the cross in the empty tomb. I'm speaking very clearly today, not speaking in parables. God died for your sins. It really happened. Jesus really lived. He really walked. He really walked in the world. He really became a human being. God the, God the Son did. He really took on your sins. He really died as a sacrifice of atonement for you. He loves you in that. This is not a parable. This is the clarity of the Bible. And we've been given that as a community by God. Glory to God, right? Praise God for that, that we, that we have that today. Because that is a gift. It's not something we accomplish in here and that we could boast in. Can't boast. We're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. God's grace at work in the world, not by our works or our wisdom or our understanding. Because the cross is foolishness to the world, not the wisdom of the world. So that said, let me pray and uh, we'll respond uh, with a couple of songs. God, thank you uh, for all of that good news today in Matthew 13. That, uh, again, even a passage like that can remind us and point us to the, the somber yet joyful news of the cross. That that's where you went, that was your mission, and you did everything in your power to orchestrate it perfectly, perfectly. You're authoring salvation, authoring the cross, authoring the empty tomb into the world. So many ways. Parables just play a small part in that uh, to ensure that you would just already harden, harden, just further harden, harden people who are, are, we were already against you, God. We were already rebelling against you. We we're already set to kill you, all of us in a way. And yet you came into the world to speak in parables to, to further harden that and ensure that, to ensure your rejection, to save those who rejected, to save those who were your enemy, 
Save those who are not close to you, not your friend. Glory to God for your salvation and all of its complex, complex and simple beauty. Uh, God, thank you at the end of the day for being rejected by sinful men like us, but using that great evil to bring about the greatest good in the world. In Christ's name, amen.